Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. When I became a Christian, and then I eventually entered into the Christian world, it was a little bit of a culture shock for me. I grew up in the synagogue in Judaism, and at times I was very interested in the cultural community experience, and at other times I was more interested in the religious or philosophical experience. And there are different synagogues that appeal to different groups of people, depending upon what they're really looking for. There are many rabbis within communities, and they often have their own beliefs that distinguish them from each other. And there is value in that because they provide rabbinical services to different classifications of people, different types of people who find different things to be important. But one thing that I found very unusual when I entered into the Christian world is the incredible preoccupation that people had with trying to get saved, with trying to go to heaven. That was a very new experience for me. I never experienced that before because in the synagogues that I was a part of in Judaism, the subject of being saved or whether you're going to go to heaven or not just never came up. It just wasn't a subject. Nowhere in the scriptures did our God ever say anything about going to heaven, that we would actually go to heaven on the basis of any criteria at all. There was never any promise in the law, for example, that would say that if a person was obedient to God, then they would go to heaven. This just simply is not a subject that is spoken of in the synagogue because it is not explicitly discussed in the scriptures. That was never of any importance. And I have found that historically in Judaism, it has never really been an important issue. It's never been a concern. If you were to ask how a person could go to heaven, then the general answer is, well, if you are born Jewish, then you'll have a place in the kingdom of heaven. And if you are not born Jewish, well, certainly you can convert to Judaism. But if you don't, then maybe you'll make it there, maybe you won't. And it depends on who you ask as to what kind of an answer you will get. But what I find today is that most rabbis actually believe in a works system, whereas if you do a lot more good works than bad works, then the Lord will have a place for you. But if you do more bad works than good works, then he won't have a place for you. But there's never any real conviction about that. It's only a suggestion or perhaps a philosophical thought. But in the Christian world, this definitely is a serious subject. This is an important subject because people really want to be saved. They really want to go to heaven. It is an important thing, and I can certainly appreciate it. No question about that whatsoever. I really do appreciate the value of that, especially given that the Lord Jesus had so much to say about this subject. He definitely spent a lot of time in his ministry telling people that they had better take him seriously, otherwise they would in no way enter the kingdom of heaven, or there would be no way that they would possibly be saved. It was an important message. It was an important subject. And I do believe that even in this day, while many people are inoculated to the notion of heaven or hell or whether you can even go there or not, it still is an important subject that should be brought up to the culture, that should be brought up to people in ways that people will continue to consider it. 
I mean, it's very easy to go up to somebody and ask them if they're going to go to heaven or hell. It's easy to do that. It's easy to condemn someone and say that they are going to go to hell because they don't believe like you believe. But in general, that's not very productive in the culture that we're in right now. In general, people are more interested in having a dialogue rather than a monologue of somebody just declaring to them what they believe, assuming that that is the word of God. And while it may be true, no question about it, the response is generally not going to be positive. You must consider the people you are speaking to if you want to have effective communication with them so that they may reconsider the beliefs that they have and consider yours as an alternative. Now, one of the reasons why I was also quite surprised at the incredible amount of energy that people in the Christian world spend on this subject is because my understanding of the gospel is that we are saved because of what Jesus did for us. And unfortunately, there are many people who don't really believe that. They may say it in certain contexts, but in general, what a lot of people do believe that I have encountered is that while it may kind of depend on what Jesus did, it also depends on what you do too, that there is some kind of a mutual agreement between you and him, that if you fulfill your end of the bargain like he fulfills his end of the bargain, then together you will meet each other in heaven and he will have a place for you to be throughout all eternity. Now, what your end of the bargain may be will depend on the church that you're participating in. It will depend on the leadership of that particular congregation, of that denomination. Everyone has their own opinion with regards to what your response should be to the living God, what your response should be to the gospel, what your involvement or your participation should be so that you can actually be saved. And this is not just based on philosophical opinion. There are some verses in the scriptures that people do refer to in order to support their ideas. For example, in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6, at the end of verse 6, he says that you are to hold fast your confidence until the end. As it says in verse 6, But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. And when people read that if, they say that there's a condition, that you have to do something in order to be in his house, be a part of his house, or perhaps stay in his house, and that you have to do this until the end. And what this means is is that you have to hold fast your confidence and the boasting of your hope, that you have to be committed to what has been revealed to you. And if you don't stay committed all the way up until the end of your life, then you may not be a member of the household of God. If you continue to read in Hebrews chapter 3 down to verse 13 and 14, it also says, But encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. There's this apparent condition that exists here. Now, of course, I do not believe that that is the correct interpretation of these verses, but I'll explain that to you in just a moment. Before that, I would like to refer to these in the context that most people are, and so you can perhaps see the absurdity of this belief if you will just follow through with it to its logical conclusion. For example, in verse 13, it says, Do not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, that you have to be encouraged 
every day, day after day. Otherwise, you may experience a hardening of your heart, and that will occur because you have been deceived by sin. And so the way that people will look at this is they will say that your salvation is conditional on your ability to overcome sin to the extent where your heart is not hardened. Now, what that means will always remain undefined, because how are you going to know if your heart has been truly hardened to the deceitfulness of sin or not? I mean, let's consider a simple definition. Let's say that your heart will be hardened to the deceitfulness of sin if there is any sin in your life that you just can't stop. If there's some sin in your life that you cannot overcome, then that must mean that you're hardened to that particular sin, that you have been hardened to the deceitfulness of it. Because if you if you were able to overcome that sin, then you could say that your heart has been changed to a certain extent so that you have been able to overcome it. So let me ask you, is there any sin in your life that you have never been able to overcome? Is there any sin in your life that you just know that you're never going to be able to experience true victory over. I mean true victory in the sense that you will never, ever commit that sin again. Is there any sin? Now, I'm not asking you if there are some sins that you feel that you have managed to overcome. I'm asking you if there are any sins that you have not. And some of us are getting old. You know, we don't have many years left. We're going to have to get it right pretty soon if we're going to pass away relatively soon within the next five or ten or fifteen years, we need to get it right right away because time is short. So if there is any sin in your life, then technically you would qualify as being someone who has been hardened to the deceitfulness of that sin, and so you will not have endured to the end. You will not be a partaker of Christ because you did not hold fast the assurance of your hope firm until the end. This is what we must conclude if we are going to assume that this is what the writer of Hebrews was intending to say. You're going to have to conclude that. Otherwise, you're going to have to be dishonest. That's the only way you can't come to the conclusion that I've just described. You have to be dishonest. You have to be deceitful. In other words, if you believe that you have gotten past the deceitfulness of sin to the extent where you don't sin anymore then you are being deceitful. You are the one who is being dishonest. And so on that basis alone also, I believe that you will not be able to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And so when you consider what I'm describing from this perspective, it leads you to a point of recognizing that you have no hope outside of his grace and mercy, that this is not some kind of cooperative agreement of some kind, that there's not his part and your part, and you had better fulfill your end of the bargain in the sense of getting some repentance and obedience in your life. But there are a lot of people who do believe what I've just described, and I believe that they believe it because they have not really given it a lot of thought. They haven't really followed through to the realistic, logical conclusion with regards to where this is going to lead you, which is to a point of absolute, total, desperate despair. There's nothing else that you could possibly experience if that's what you really believe. To say that your salvation depends on your ability to maintain your confidence, to maintain your ability to avoid sin, is a task that I personally don't think anybody can possibly fulfill. And so because of this, if people recognize what I've just described as being valid, what people will do is they will try to reduce the seriousness of sin or reduce the seriousness of these verses that are given here in Hebrews chapter 3. 
if you can reduce the intensity a little bit, then it can make it easier for some people at least to be able to fulfill what is described here. And so the other alternative that many people will pursue is an approach that says that you have to maintain your confidence, your belief that Jesus is your Messiah. You have to maintain your confidence and belief in the truth that he doesn't hold any of your sins against you and that you have been saved. You have to maintain your confidence that he is who he claimed to be. And so if that is the case, then only those who eventually turn away from the Lord Jesus as being the person who they are going to trust in and depend on throughout their entire life, if that's the case, then this is a person who fulfills what is described in these verses, that that is the sin that they have been hardened to, that they have rejected the Lord Jesus, which is the sin, and they have been deceived in that sense. And on that basis, they will have lost the salvation that they once had because of the conditional if that is given in verse 6 and in verse 14. This is a conclusion that I've heard many people come to, and it's definitely more popular than the conclusion of getting all of the sin out of your life, at least this one. And this does come up on occasion. It normally comes up when somebody walks away from the church, when somebody leaves a church, leaves a congregation, and says that they're just not going to have anything to do with that congregation or that church or that belief anymore, they're just simply going to walk away from it, then the religious people who are a part of that particular congregation will just simply claim that the reason why this person left was because they never really begin to begin with, or they were deceived and now they probably are not saved anymore. And that's how people will respond and be able to convince themselves that everything is okay and they can go on in their lives. But you have to consider why people leave when you consider something like that. It's really important to ask the question, why, why did somebody walk away? Why did they leave? Why did they declare that they would no longer have anything to do with the church or with the faith? I mean, there certainly must be some reason behind that. I have talked with a lot of people who have done this. And I've asked them, why? Why did you decide to turn away from the Lord Jesus? Why did you turn away from Christianity? What was it that you experienced that motivated you to just throw in the towel and just say that this is all just a bunch of fiction? What was it that really did that? And it turns out that I've never run across anyone who has answered this question by saying that they decided to reject Christianity and Jesus because they wanted to pursue a life of sin. I've never had anybody tell me that as an answer to that question. I've never experienced that before. There might be a few people, but for the most part, I would say that in general, the majority of people who turn away from Christianity, they don't turn away from Christianity because they want to indulge their flesh. Honestly, I believe it's something very different. And the reason why I believe that is because people have given me different answers. You know, one of the most common reasons why people turn away from the Lord Jesus and why they believe that they need to just simply forget the whole thing and no longer have any confidence about what they heard before is because at some point in their religious life, at some point, they recognize that somebody's not being honest with them. They recognize that somebody's not being truthful with them. That they say one thing and then they say something else. And what I mean by that is theological stuff. I'm not talking about somebody just causing pain in somebody's life because they steal something from them. They rob them or they deceive them or they say something that is wicked and evil. Not like that. What I mean is is that people pay attention to what pastors are teaching and they pay attention to the doctrines that are being taught in the church. 
And there comes a point when a person recognizes that there's a contradiction, that there is something that just doesn't make any sense, that either the things that a pastor is saying contradict what he is saying, that he says one thing and then he says something else, and they just cannot coexist. There's just no way. Or they see that there's something in the scriptures that says one thing, and yet the pastor is saying something that is different that contradicts that which is in the scriptures. It could just be because of a misunderstanding of the believer who doesn't understand the context of what is written, or it could be that the believer does not understand the context through which the pastor is speaking. There certainly are many reasons, and there are many circumstances, and I cannot even begin to try to address all of them. I wouldn't even try to do that. I'm only suggesting that people often leave a church or they abandon their faith for reasons that we don't want to admit. And certainly, to admit that we were being deceptive or dishonest because of our own inadequacies or just because we don't take some things very seriously and so we don't see the contradictions ourselves as being that big of a deal, if there is even any contradiction, it's because of things like this that people will abandon the faith. And I have to be honest with you, there have been occasions when I have told people that if I was them, I would have abandoned the faith too. If that's what I believed, I would definitely reject Jesus, I would turn away from the faith, I would leave their church, I would do all of that. It doesn't normally help a whole lot when I'm having a conversation with them, because if what they saw about a pastor before speaking to them about one thing was suspect, they're also going to consider that what I may tell them is going to be suspect also, regardless of how I approach it. But certainly, I have brought that up on occasion. I have mentioned that I would not believe in a God like that, or like what people have been told, if that was the true God. And so I do build a sense of camaraderie with some people. It doesn't necessarily work out in the direction that I really want it to right away, but it at least gives me a foundation to continue a new conversation with them about further important issues. But that's why a lot of people don't hold on to their confidence or hold on to their belief firm until the end. Now, going back into Hebrews chapter 3, verses 6, and down into verses 13 and 14, I don't believe that that's what the writer is talking about at all. I do believe that he's talking about something very different, that these ifs that he uses are not conditional ifs, that these are ifs as in inasmuch as, those kinds of ifs, inasmuch as you hold fast your confidence and boast of your hope firm until the end. Again in verse 6, But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, inasmuch as we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. That would be a better translation of this word that is used as an if. And again, down into verse 14, For we have become partakers of Christ, inasmuch as we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. And so if that's the case, there's only one more question to answer. If it is an inasmuch-as type of if, if that's the kind of if that the writer used, and I do believe that that is the if that he used, then we have to consider what is the end. The end of what? Well, the end is the end of the chapter. That's the end. Because if you continue to the end of the chapter, you see something very interesting. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, it says, And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned? whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter 
because of unbelief. It's because of unbelief. At the end of chapter 3, he says that the Israelites were not able to enter into the rest that God provided because they didn't believe. He said that they were brought forward out of Egypt and they were given the opportunity to enter into the promised land, but they did not hold their confidence firm until the end. They did not hold fast their belief, their assurance until the end. They were hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, and in accordance with chapter 3 at the end, where he says the definition of sin is unbelief, it's because they didn't believe. That's what hardened their heart. Their hearts were hardened because they did not believe. Our hearts are hardened if we do not believe. But if we believe, then we are not sinning. Now, this is an important definition of sin because, in truth, this is the only sin that truly remains. All other sin has been dealt with through the Lord Jesus dying on the cross. That's what the writer has described in chapter 1 and chapter 2. We understand fully that the sin issue between us and God is completely over, that we have been sanctified, that he has provided us with propitiation. But if you will not believe that it's over, if you will not believe that he has actually accomplished all things, then you cannot be saved. You cannot hold fast your faith firm to the end, which is to the point of salvation, because you cannot receive what he is offering because you don't believe truly in what he's offering. That's what he's referring to. And there are many things that people believe that do contradict the truth that we have been totally forgiven. I don't have time for that right now because I'm almost out of time for this program. But you think about that. You think about anything that you believe, anything that you have heard anybody say, any sermon that you have heard being promoted or preached, anything that has ever been communicated that leaves you with the conclusion that the Lord still holds your sins against you in some way whatsoever. If that's the case, then you have not held fast your confidence firm until the end. Now, I do believe that a person who is saved can be deceived. I do believe that, even to the extent where they do not believe that their sins have been completely forgiven, and I do believe that a person can still truly be saved. The intent of the writer here is to lead a person to the point of salvation, not to deal with a person who has already been saved. I believe that that is an important distinction to be made. And so with that assumption that that is what the writer is referring to, which I do sincerely believe, I believe that he is saying that if Jesus is greater than the angels, and if Jesus is greater than Moses, then today do not harden your heart if you hear his voice and you hear his offer for salvation. Considering Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 7, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me, and saw my works for forty years. Therefore I was angry with this generation, and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Verse 12 says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. And so when you are confronted with salvation and you are confronted with the truth of what he's done today, believe it, embrace it, do not fall away from what has been revealed to you. And if you do that, then you will have fallen through all the way to the end, which is to the point of salvation. Because if you hear the message, 
You believe the message, you trust the message, you enter into His rest today. And you enter into salvation today. And if that's the case, then you are saved. Because in truth, the only way you can lose your salvation is if there is a sin that can be held against you. But since he died for all sins, there is no more sin that can be held against you except for the sin of unbelief. And trust me, if you believe, and then you begin to walk in the belief that you have, as long as you're not deceived by some ridiculous theologies that certainly have no basis at all in the scriptures, as long as that doesn't happen, then I personally see no way that a person could ever turn away from the faith. I see no way whatsoever. It would only happen if they are lied to by somebody who they want to trust and believe. And through seeing the dishonesty and the deception, they walk away from something because that is the most reasonable and logical thing to do. But notice that I've spent so much time talking about salvation, and yet the word salvation is nowhere to be found here in Hebrews chapter 3. What is to be found is the word rest, and that is an important distinction, that to the, to the Gentile, the subject of salvation seems to be the big argument. But to the Hebrew, it's not salvation, again, because in Judaism, salvation is not really an important issue like it is within the Gentile churches. In the Hebrew synagogues, the real issue comes down to entering into his rest. And I believe that's why the writer of this letter refers to it, because if you will believe and be saved, then you will enter into his rest, and that it is entering into his rest that is truly important. To the Gentile, entering into his rest is not so important, especially when you have a lot of Christian people who believe that their life as a Christian is about now doing good works for God. But to a Hebrew, they have already been doing good works for God. You can appeal to them on the basis of entering into a rest, a rest that was promised to the children of Israel that they never did achieve, even after they entered into the promised land. But that is described in Hebrews chapter 4. And I will begin with chapter 4 in the next broadcast. You have been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 38353, Colorado Springs, Colorado, 80937. Or use the donation link on our website, livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net.